Om Namo Narayanaya. This is a recording of a talk of James Swartz on the Bhagavad Gita at Yoga Vidya Bad Meinberg near Hanover in Germany. Chapter 9, Bhagavad Gita, King of Secrets. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, there's this notion in the, in the spiritual world, you know, that, oh, John, don't tell anybody about this. This is secret knowledge. Nobody should know. You've got to hide it away. Keep it, keep it. It's special. It's, you know, if I have a If I have a Rolex watch, it's worth $20,000, and I put that watch here, it will be gone in five minutes if I leave. If I go out, even if I go to the bathroom for five minutes, boom, it will be gone. But the self, you can leave the self sitting right here all day long on any street corner in the world, and no one will take it. The most valuable thing there is, and no one will pick it up. It hides itself. And how does it do that? Very simply, it's just me. <laughs> you can't imagine that the self is just ordinary me. Just this simple consciousness that knows what is happening. That's all. There's nothing to it. When you understand that, you're so surprised. In fact, usually, usually people make a big story when, when they find that out. They start ringing the bell, get everybody to come to church, they put up a website, They give themselves a fancy spiritual name. They want disciples to teach the self too. But actually, those people really don't know what it is because if they knew what it was, they would keep their mouth absolutely shut because you would be very embarrassed that you were seeking for this thing called the self for so long because it's been you all along. So many thought, we just don't know what we're seeking. 
The one that's doing the seeking is what he's huh? seeking. The seeker is the sought. You just don't take yourself into account in every situation. The object's what counts, not me, the subject. And that's why it's hidden. It's always present. You're always experiencing the self. There's never one second ever where you're not experiencing the self. Waking, dream, and deep sleep, you're always experiencing the self. But yet, what? You say, I'm looking for the self. It's funny. When I was, when I was seeking for the self, I, I, I didn't know this also, incidentally, as you may know. It's like everybody else. I didn't know what it was. And one day I came back from India. And that was, I was, uh, old days, I was a hippie. I had long, real long hair and a big beard and really funny, weird clothing, you know. And I, huh? And my mother, uh, my mother, my I came from a very a respectable family, and my mother was the town judge. So she was, she was a lady, and she was squared away. She had her hair done every day. She had, had wore beautiful clothes, and everybody in town knew her and respected her and everything. So I came back one time. She didn't know I was coming to visit. I just came back from India. And she was outside on the patio having tea with the ladies of the town. The, you know, the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, springtime, and the flowers were blooming, and it was all very elegant. And the ladies were sitting there sipping their tea and eating their little cookies and uh, it was, uh, and I walked in and I just looked, I'm wild. I got my hair, my big hair out like this and the long beard and funny orange clothes and all this stuff, beads and everything. And the, the ladies, like, they didn't, most of them didn't recognize me. They were kind of shocked. But mother was, mother was always cool. She was just very cool. And she just turned and she looked and she said, she said, oh, and this is my son James. He's been in India seeking himself. <laughs> <laughs> and all the ladies went, <laughs> put their little hank, their little napkins up to their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's so silly, I'm seeking me. <laughs> How, how does that work? Well, it doesn't work. You're, you're already, this, you're only the self. That's all you ever are. That's all you're ever going to be. And it's no big deal. It's just you. Just simple, ordinary, unconcerned, ever-present witness awareness. It's just that part of you that knows what you know. That's it. No big deal. When you discover that, you totally relax and you're completely happy and your seeking stops. You're not getting the self ever. You're not going to get enlightened ever. You're just going to get rid of the neurosis of seeking. Hmm? 
It's just one day you just realize, oh, it's me, and then you stop seeking. And you feel so happy because that, that desire to experience something or to be something or to know something, that desire just disappears. And it leaves you clean and simple and pure like you are. Nothing left. So that's why it's a secret. We, we you know, over and over and over again, uh, we have to make this point that there's nothing, uh, uh, moksha or liberation is not an event. It's not something that happens. It's your nature. You're always free. You will not become free. You're free right now when you think you aren't free. You're free. <clears throat> it's not going to happen. It's you. And that's why it's hidden away. It's so secret. Because we, we believe. We, we don't. Because when we started this text, Krishna said, he said, there's many notions of enlightenment. He was being very nice. I'm not as nice as Krishna. And uh, I've, I've got quite a reputation now for because I'm willing to question these uh, ideas that are there in the spiritual world about how you can experience this thing called consciousness or experience God and all that sort of thing. Because it's that notion, that experiential notion, that's causing all the frustration. You're trying to experience something that you're already experiencing. And if you read all these books, please don't read my book. Don't read my autobiography. You've read that? Maybe some of you read my autobiography. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. You'll think, oh, Jesus, what an ex what amazing thing. And people say, do you, do you need to have all those experiences to, be, to get enlightened? I said, no way. And I pointed out in there. No way. Those, the experience of, of the, these ex spiritual experiences, these en enlightenment experiences, these non-dual experiences, these transcendental experiences, these, these uh, oneness experiences and union experiences and all that, NDEs, near-death, all those experiences, huh, they just can be a huge, huge problem. They can burden you with the notion that, you know, that those experience, an experience like that or those experiences are actually self-enlightenment. But if it's an experience that you don't have right now, it will go. Huh? Any experience that you're not having right now at this minute will go. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're the Buddha, if you're Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. If you're God himself and you have some experience, if you have an experience that you're not having at this moment, uh, then it will go and it will be useless. You are the ever-experienced consciousness, ever-experienced and ever-experiencing consciousness. With objects, you experience yourself plus objects, and without objects, you experience yourself. And that, that uh, is very difficult to appreciate, simply for, for lack of the right idea. 
And it's easier to teach somebody who doesn't know anything spiritual. There was a, I had an ashram in California years ago, and there was a young boy next door. He was nine years old. And he used to come uh, almost every day. Uh, he, he had a real spiritual quality, and he used to like the chants. We chanted every day. We had a really, really hot chants. We had really good meditations. Sometimes he'd come for the meditations. We'd just sit. Ann and I'd give a little Vedanta talk also. And one day after, uh, one Saturday, in fact, we were, we were just sitting in the backyard talking, a bunch of us, and he came over. And he said to me, he said, uh, hey, Jim. He, I was known as Jim. He said, hey, Jim, uh, I want to ask you a question. He said, you know, what is the self you're talking about? And I explained it to him. And he said, oh, huh, I knew that. I knew that all along. That's me, isn't it? He said, yeah. And to this day, he's still a self. He knows who he is. He's had a happy life. Everything was fine. What, five minutes it took for him to figure it out? Because he had no notion. I was in business with a guy once. He, he, he didn't know who I was either, but he'd heard, sort of heard. And uh, one day he said to me, same thing. And I, about five, five minutes maybe I told him. He said, oh, I knew that all along. I knew that ever since I was a kid. He was a happy guy before, during, and after. He wasn't seeking, and he, and he wasn't intend to seek. He said, I know that. He said, I'm always good. So we get these funny ideas, and we have to you know, just continually examine our beliefs and see why it is that we don't feel complete. Because you're as complete as you'll ever be. There's not, no experience can complete you. So that's the idea. Krishna said, because your heart is pure, obviously this was the qualifications. Huh? Because he's supposedly qualified. Arjuna made, let's say let's assume that Arjuna got qualified altogether. At least Arjuna's heart is pure. He he realizes he's in over his head and he he was looking for the way out. He wants to know what's beyond Dharma and Adharma. He wants to know who he is. And so, in Vedanta, as we said, over and over and over again, and please get the book and read the qualifications, or get the, the on the website is, is uh, Viveka Chudamani, or get the video or the audio of Viveka Chudamani, and listen to the qualifications. So that's what a pure heart. If, if you're qualified, then your mind, your heart is pure, and then, they can, then we can teach you. And that means a discriminating person, you're a discriminating person. You know that what the self is and what the not-self is. So you're clear about that on that topic. You're a dispassionate person. A dispassionate person means somebody who's indifferent to the results of their actions. Now, that's a strange qualification, isn't it? Why is that why is that such a difficult qualification? Indifferent to the results of my actions? No way. I'm not indifferent to the results of my actions. I'm doing my actions. Why? Because I want those, because my happiness 
and my well-being depends upon those results. If I don't get what I want, I'm not going to be happy. So naturally I'm emotional, isn't it? And, and Vedanta says, no, you're not qualified if you care about what happens. That's called dispassion, vairagya. The third qualification, control of the mind. That means what? Observing the mind from what? Observing your thoughts and your feelings and your experiences, what? From the point of view of awareness. Looking at everything in light of the fact that I'm awareness. Um, control of the senses. He talks all, over and over and over again about control of the senses. Why? Because if you, if you act, whenever you act, you create karma. And you can only act with your sense organs. And, well, and if you don't have your sense organs under control, you'll act impulsively, not deliberately. You should act deliberately. You shouldn't act just on the basis of your feelings. Understand? A person who just acts on the basis of his feelings is going to have a lot of, without thinking about it first, is going to have a lot of problems. The biggest sense organ to control, and this is the main, the most important sadhana you can do, is called vaktapas. Vaktapas, tapas means a discipline or control, and vaktapas means what? Means control of the this tongue. And that basically boils down to speech. Your speech, huh? Your speech should be nonviolent. Nonviolent means what? Doesn't produce pain or suffering for yourself or somebody else. It should be pleasant and truthful, but not so truthful that it hurts other people. A little white lie is good now and again to spare people's feelings. You don't have to tell people what you think, what how you feel. And you don't have to tell people what the truth is. If somebody asks you to please tell them the truth about themselves, then you can reply, but you should be, be very careful the way you speak to them. Because if you speak, if you don't control your, your words, you will get bad karma. You, first of all, you'll feel guilty. And secondly, they will become angry and they will set up, it will set up a chain of, of bad karma, bad thoughts in your mind. So control of the senses is a big, important, very important, extremely important uh, qualification. Uh, the next, the next qualification is is called uh, swadharma. We talked about that. Swadharma has two two points. One is not trying to fix or change other people or the world. Do-gooders. If you're a do-gooder, if you think you just got to help everybody, huh? Please stop. <laughs> Unless somebody asks you for help, then what? Then you can give help. But trying to help people because you see their suffering, huh? It means what? You're doing their dharma and not yours. 
And if you do their dharma, you, you won't be working out what you should be working out. And they won't be working out what they're working out because you're doing their dharma for them. So they will become dependent and lose their self-reliance. So, huh? Forget the do-gooding business. Forget the changing the world and fixing the world and making everybody happy. If a person's suffering, he or she should be suffering. There's a reason. That's a result of that action. And that suffering is good for them. And unless they want a way out like Arjuna, and they actually surrender to you, then what? It's none of your business. It's not your fault. And if they are suffering, your little action isn't going to change it. There's a deeper reason. And as soon as you fix them, they will get unfixed again and start suffering all over again. And all you'll do is waste a lot of your, spe- your precious time trying to change your, you know, other people or change the world. So we're not do-gooders. We're not trying to change the world. We see, as Krishna said earlier in Chapter 4, the world's perfect. He said everything in the three worlds is perfect. So don't worry. And the other is trying to change myself. We talked about this also carefully. Don't try to be something that you're not. Don't try to become spiritual or pure or holy or perfect or good. Don't walk around with this this smarmy spiritual smile on your face trying to convince everybody that you're in deep bliss when there's pain behind your funny smile. Have you been to, ever been to those spiritual events or those ashrams where people are, are, have the bliss look? <laughs> huh? They're not blissful. They have the bliss look. And they talk bliss and, the, and they have a funny little bliss language. Huh? They have their own special blissful language. Huh? Forget it. Stop trying to be enlightened, be happy, be blissful. Accept yourself as you are. That's called swadharma. Then titiksha. Titiksha means what? Suffering the little pinpricks of life with equanimity. All this whining and complaining that you see in these societies where people are spoiled and entitled. The slightest little thing goes wrong and they get emotionally upset and they start complaining. What about this? What about that? Always whining and complaining and grumbling about things. Tatiksha is too bad. Suck it up. Act like a man and get on with it. Like my, I love my wife. My wife loves her mother. Her mother doesn't like me, and I don't like my mother-in-law. Okay? Fair enough. It's good. It's fine. Now, my mother-in-law wants to come and visit on the weekend. And I, I, I don't want her to come, but my wife wants her to come. Now, what am I going to do? Huh? And she doesn't want to see me, but what? She loves her daughter, so she wants to see her daughter. So I've got to put up with my mother-in-law for the weekend, and she has to put up with me for the weekend. Now, what do I... She thinks that she thinks that the daughter could have done a better job. She could have married somebody decent. Huh? Instead of me, I just lay around, I drink beer, I watch the television, watch the sports, you know. 
it, I, I'm just, I'm not ambitious. So my mother-in-law, she's, she, so we have a problem there. Now, how do I behave when my mother-in-law comes? Do I say little catty things? Do I ignore her? Or do I come, ah, oh, so happy to see you, and give her a big hug. Oh, I love you, glad you can come. And what? I suffer inside quietly. <laughs> That's called tetiction. That's a classy person. Huh? Understand. What else? Samadhana. Focus. Keeping your mind on the topic all the time. Consistent focus. I, I when I was young, I, I didn't I always been pretty good at focusing, but when I got in my late teens and early twenties I got this this absolute mad desire to, to get rich, to make money. And I started making money very quickly. I just I was just lucky, I guess. I don't know if I was good or I was lucky, whatever it was. And I got so that I was thinking about money, well, and sex, but money was first because if you had the money, then you got the sex. So I didn't worry about the sex because if you had the money, then all the girls wanted to have sex with you. So that worked, worked out really well. That's all I thought about all day long was money. Morning, noon, and night. Every single relationship, everything that was always in my head was, how can I make a buck, a dollar out of this situation? Then, fortunately, that vasana burned out when I was about 24, 25. And then the spiritual vasana came up. I had a big epiphany, and I decided I'm going to seek for God. And what it was the greatest help. Why? Because I already knew how to think about one thought all day long. Day after day, week after week, month. After. I already knew how to do that. Now I had another thought, huh? and I could just switch, and I had that discipline. It comes from what? Keeping, holding my mind on the topic and going forward with it. Just no matter what. Always, always, always keeping that thought. So that's called samadhana. And then faith. We talked about that faith in the scripture and the teacher uh, pending the result of your investigation. In other words, once you've heard the teaching, you have, don't criticize the teaching. Assume that if you don't understand the teaching, you're wrong, not the teaching. And try to figure out what the teaching is saying. Have faith that the teaching's correct. And, and, then, and then apply that knowledge to your mind and see if the teaching's not right. That's called faith in the scripture. That faith will go away, what? At, you, at a while, at that faith will be converted into knowledge. You won't have to believe anymore that this that it's true. What what are we asking you to believe? What are what are we asking you to believe? Huh? Just just make it simple. And this is the truth: that you're beautiful. That you're very beautiful. That you don't need anything. That you're pure and perfect, and that your nature is love. 
that you're lovable. That's what we're saying. Now, why would you have to have faith in something like that? <laughs> huh? Is there anything more beautiful than that idea, that that knowledge? That's knowledge. Is there anything more beautiful than that? Why don't you just accept it right now? Why do you have to, like, have faith in it? Maybe it's true. Why? Because I don't believe that's true. I believe that I'm not beautiful, that I'm not complete, that I need these things. I believe that. I, I, my whole search is based upon the idea that I'm not pure and perfect and holy and complete. And I don't ever examine that belief to see if that belief is true. I take that belief to be true. And yet when the scripture tells you you are beautiful, huh, we have to ask you to believe in it. But you just automatically believe the belief that what you're not nice, that you're not beautiful, that you're not complete. That's so strange, isn't it? That that's what I'm a- all I'm asking you, all the, t- the scriptures asking you. Believe that you're beautiful, that you're holy, that you're beautiful, you're pure, you're lovable, you're so lovable. Understand? That's faith. And you know, if you if that, then apply this teaching, be sincere, and and what then you'll see that it's true. That's called moksha. Then you'll see that what we say is true. And finally, mumukshutvam. Burning desire to be free. Not just, oh, it's very fashionable to be a seeker, you know. Now, particularly now, it's gotten big. Seeking's big. It's like, I don't know, probably hundreds of thousands of people now are, are seeking the self from the internet and from all these years, that the neo, the neo world is a big world, satsang world, lots of people seeking, seeking, seeking. But a lot of those people, it's just a fashion. It's just a lifestyle. You know, you get the cute little Tibetan hat, and you get the little Om t-shirt, you know, and you, you jet off to India for a month or two, and you get a hug from Amaji, and you go hang out with the Dalai Lama, and you go, you know, go get your satsang with Muji, and huh, and you just you build up your spiritual resume and your credentials, so you you know, for your spiritual autobiography, and you're just so cool. You little, the boys they get a little stick, so they look like a, a sage, you know, and they got little beads and all that holy stuff, and it's like like a, a fashion. And all your other friends are doing it too. Oh, look alike. And and yeah, you do want freedom, but hey, I'd rather be a cool spiritual person, really. And I'd rather be, huh? I'd rather be part of the Sangha, really, and ha- and know that all my friends are cool spiritual people too. And huh? so you do have a little bit of desire to be free, but basically it's a small desire. And then there's the middling people. They're into it, but huh, they still got one foot in the world. 
they still got one foot in Sansara. They're still hoping, oh, maybe, maybe if I, it's good to see, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty sincere, but hey, if Mrs. Wright comes along, <laughs> I'll have to think twice about this whole spiritual thing, because I always wanted to have a child, and I always wanted to have a nice little house, and I, you know, cozy, I want, I want a little cozy life. Maybe it's still possible for me. They want it, but they don't want it. And then there's the ones who say, that's all I want. That's it. Forget it. I'm ready to walk on, on hot coals to get there. No matter what. They don't care about anything. All they care about is they're obsessed with this idea of freedom. That's called the burning desire. So that's what he means by a pure heart. Your, your heart's pure. Your motivation's clear. And you're qualified. And if 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 you if you don't check up, if you don't match up on all these qualifications, then what? Do karma yoga, do jnana yoga, do your stuff, and you will get qualified. You qualify yourself by getting on the path and following the path as it's meant to be. So he said. He said, because your heart is pure, I will explain clearly and in detail, the secret and immediate knowledge which will release you from inauspiciousness. That means suffering. This easily accomplished knowledge, why does he say it's easy? At other places he says it's very hard, and in other, and in other places he says it's very easy. You say, well, can't this guy get it right? Is it easy or is it hard? Which way, what is it? I, I want to know. Well, it's very hard if you're not qualified, and it's very easy if you are. That's what he means. <laughs> Huh? That's why he says easy here. He said because his heart is pure, and Arjuna really wants to know. So even Arjuna's a bit of a bit of a you know a little slow in the brain, huh? and that's okay. Huh? Uh, he, his heart is pure, and he's going to get it. He's got the qualifications. So this easily accomplished knowledge, the king of all knowledges and secret, is not opposed to dharma. It is the greatest purifier. Karma yoga is great. It will purify you, but it's slow, gentle, huh? evolutionary, little by little by little. But self-knowledge, huh? that's quick. Because there you're cutting off the karma at the thought level, at the desire level, before it has a chance to manifest. In karma yoga, what? You, you have to act out your desires, so you have to do the actions. So you're going to what? You're, you're, working on, you're working on your mind vasana by vasana, thought by thought, desire by desire, experience by experience. So it's slow, and it's good. It's patient and slow. But what, once you get a little bit of space, in other words, once your life, your mind gets a little calm, then you practice jnana yoga, huh? you practice this discrimination, it goes very fast. Because you're nipping it right here before it has a chance to become, at the vasana, at the kama level, before it has a chance to become karma. So it what? So it does, so you kill it here, you don't have to act it out. And you just do it on a thought by thought basis. So it's the greatest purifier. It's fast, it's clean, it's efficient. But you need the karma yoga to prepare yourself to do it. 
Maybe you can do it now. You may be prepared. You might not need karma yoga, but generally you do. Some people have unconsciously figured out karma yoga without knowing it's karma yoga. They, they, they're just, it's built in. And then they hear about karma yoga and say, oh, I, that, I've had that all along. These are basically happy people. They, we call them dharmis. And they're people who what? Who consider the situation in every case and who make a contribution to life, however it is. They're not just thinking of themselves first. They're, 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 they're thinking of the situation. They're including that. And it's important for them to look after what? The situation, whatever, huh? before they take what they need for themselves. You should get what you want out of the situation, but you should also make a contribution. It's a, life is a two-way street. It's a give and take. And you should give a little more than you take. Those who lack faith and self-knowledge do not remain, do realize me and remain caught in the whirlpool of samsara. He said, I cannot be experienced. What? Ramji, you just said that you're experiencing yourself all the time. Now it says here, you're telling me, Krishna is telling me I can't be experienced. What does that mean? I can't be experienced as an object. That's what he means. I cannot be experienced as an object. I'm always experienced as the subject. Remember, what did we say reality was? Two, there's two what? Two dimensions to reality. Two orders. Of, yeah, let's open that uh, window a little bit. It's pretty hot in here. Or maybe even the door gets some some get a little bit of cool air. Is the is the heat on? Yes. Oh. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> There we go. Whew. No, only a little. Huh? It's only a little. He only turned it down a little? Yeah, it was only on two or three. Oh, okay. Or three. But now, see, it's, it's almost civilized in here. I cannot, okay. We said that, that even though reality is non-dual consciousness, even though reality is non-dual consciousness, it has two orders. Uh, there's two dimensions to it. The subjective dimension and the objective dimension. The subject and the object. Uh, they're both consciousness. The subject is consciousness and the object is consciousness also. Uh, but what? Consciousness plus an object, a thought, is what? An experience. Uh, Consciousness minus a thought is consciousness. But what? This jiva cannot experience... this. The jiva, what you call you, the experiencing entity, is actually an object. Huh? The person you are is known to you, awareness. And that person can't experience you because it's an object. 
In other words, this reflected self that I am is not conscious. It just looks like it's conscious. And if it is conscious, it could only experience what? Objects. It can't experience the subject because the subject huh, is, is subtler than the subtlest, it said in here. In other words, it's so subtle that you can't experience it. That's why he says here you can't, be, you can't experience it because he's talking to what? Arjuna's jiva. And I take myself to be a jiva and I want to experience what? Consciousness. See why it doesn't work? See why all this searching for a spiritual experience doesn't work? All spiritual experiences are only in samsara. Yeah, that's good. All spiritual experiences are only in samsara. You never ever get out of samsara to experience anything. Why? Because you're always out of samsara anyway. All the experience you're having is out of samsara anyway. You're only experiencing yourself when you're experiencing an object, but you don't know that. You think you're experiencing an object, and you think the object is something other than you, but you're actually only experiencing yourself ever. But Maya makes it look like what? I'm experiencing the object. Just a trick. Um, asking for clarification. Yeah. yeah. You say experience will not set you free, only knowledge will. Yeah. But uh, we have seen that knowledge is an object. So uh, knowing is an experience because it's consciousness and an object, which is knowledge. N knowledge is an object, yes. And so what what is that what what is it going to set you free from? So knowing is an experience. No, knowing is an ex knowing the self is ever knowing. It's self knowing and self experiencing. It's not an experience. If you say an experience, that means it's a discrete experience. It's a special or unique experience. It's just experience. The self, huh? It's just experience. It's not a unique... Every experience comes out of the self, doesn't it? Every experience comes out of the self. What's the source of... What is the, where all your experiences come from? Are you over there now experiencing the traffic on the freeway? You're experiencing the traffic on the freeway here. Experience is coming out of you, isn't it? Isn't it? Where is it coming from? Is it, huh? Every, every, you know this with your thoughts, don't you? And isn't, isn't the thought that you're having right now the experience that you're having right now? We said the experience that you're having is just the thought that you're having right now. And if the thought's coming out of you, the experience is coming out of you. Where's the experience coming from but you? I'm not going over there and climbing into your mind and dumping the experience in your mind, am I? How could I do that? Because there's everybody in the room. I'd have to be like 25 people to get into 25 minds and dump the same experience into everybody. I can't do that, can I? 
you're manufacturing the experience of me out of your own consciousness. Every experience that you have is manufactured out of experience. Just like every object is manufactured out of existence, isn't it? Huh? Is, doesn't doesn't the, the, the book come, ex, come out of existence? Existence, huh? The elements exist and then the book appears, right? The book's not coming from anything but air, fire, water, earth, and space. That's existence in the form of the elements. The tree, the tree's coming out of existence, isn't it? Existence is first and then tree comes out. The, we said yesterday the existence doesn't belong to the tree. The tree belongs to the existence. Well, existence is just pure experience. It's just the self experiencing itself. So each single experience is what? Is manufactured out of experience, out of you. So how could you get an experience of yourself? Yourself is making experience. Yourself is generating one experience, two experience, three ex endless experience. In fact, it, it, it actually just generates three experiences. And then within those three experiences, everything happens to you. What are those three experiences? Waking, dream, and deep sleep. If somebody asks you, uh, how many experiences did you have during the day? What will you say? What will you say? Well, you'll, you'll go in your mind and you'll say, well, I got, I, I, I woke up, that's one experience, and then I turned off the alarm clock, and then I went back to sleep, and then I felt, I woke up, and then I was late for work, so I turned on the co uh, coffee machine, then I took a shower, then, huh? And then and you go through, did, 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 like you had, I had 800 experiences, or 8,000 experiences today. Is that correct? Did you have, huh? <laughs> you were either awake, or you're asleep, or you're dreaming. Isn't it? And, and did the waking come from someplace other than you? Did the dream come out of any place but you? Huh? Did the deep sleep come from anywhere but you? When you're in deep sleep, aren't you experiencing yourself? What's the answer? Say yes. <laughs> Why don't you want to say yes? <laughs> Why? Because when you when I say you, you're not thinking the right you. You're thinking the wrong you. You're thinking the waking state entity, aren't you? So when I say you're experiencing yourself, you say, no, that's not right. I'm not there. Isn't it? But you're definitely there, aren't you? How could you have how can you have say that you slept if you weren't there to experience sleep? You can't say that you slept if you didn't if there was no experience, could you? You have there's a word for sleep. Why do they have a word for sleep? You people don't invent words for things that don't exist. 
Huh? They know, huh? <laughs> the words are there to describe experiences and objects that exist. Sleep exists, and it exists because I experience sleep. I just don't experience sleep as what? Huh? As a, as a jiva. As the waking state jiva. Do I? <coughs> I don't experience what? Sleep as a jiva. A waking state jiva. Actually, there I am a jiva in the deep sleep state or I couldn't experience sleep in the way that I normally experience waking. So when I say, aren't you there in deep sleep? You, you're not sure. But you're definitely there. Why do you want to sleep? If you're not experiencing something, then why do you go to sleep? You precisely go to sleep because what? Because you're getting away from this person for a while. And that, and that mental activity and all those actions and so forth and so on. You want relief from this person. So you lay down and you let that person go. And then what? And then what? You begin to experience, the self experiences itself in that state without you. Without you, jiva. There you're just pure experience of yourself. And what is the pure experience of yourself in deep sleep? What is that? Anandam. Bliss. Full. Do you, do you feel any limitations in deep sleep? Do you feel any sense of limitations? You're totally free in deep sleep. You feel bliss and you feel free. That's why everybody likes to sleep. Because there, at that moment, at that time, at that little short period of time, all your vasanas are dormant. And Ishwara has put made your subtle body go dormant. Your subtle body, Ishwara puts your subtle body back into its seed form and relieves you of all the thoughts and feelings and desires and fears that are causing problems for you in the waking state. Ishwara is very kind. He gives you that sleep state so you can recharge your batteries and what? And, and heal your body and so forth and so on. So you're definitely always present, aren't you? And you're always experiencing. And every experience, where is it coming from? Come on. It's not coming from the outside. See, huh? Every single discrete experience is coming out of me, and it is already, ex in other words, it's coming out of pure experience. Just like any physical object is coming out of pure existence. You have pure existence, what? Creating physical objects. And pure existence consciousness creates experience objects. So whatever your experience is, is existence consciousness, right? taking different forms only. So there's never a moment when you're not experiencing yourself with objects or without objects. Think about it. It's hard because why? Why is it this is such a hard idea to assimilate? 
You know the answer. The answer is because what? I think I'm what? This body. I, I, I don't take into account the fact that the body is just an experience in me. That the self is what? Created a body. Out of me, out of itself. I think I'm the body. I think I'm the object. So when I think I'm the object, then what? I'm fooled. I identify with the body and my senses, and my senses tell me that you're out there. My senses tell me that the, the, the freeway's out there. But nobody sees the freeway, do they? Even when you're on the freeway, you don't see the freeway. You just see what? The properties of the object as interpreted by your senses. And everybody's in senses interpret the same object differently. So could the object have any kind of self-nature or reality of its own? Can't. So at every moment, every second, everything you're experiencing is only you. And he's got to tell Arjuna this because Arjuna thinks he's the body. He thinks he's going to kill somebody, which means the body, and he thinks he's going to, they're going to be killed because he thinks they're the body. And Krishna doesn't see the bodies. He sees the bodies, but he knows the bodies are mitya. He sees the wood. He doesn't see the chair. He says, you can kill the chair, but you can't kill the wood. You can kill the body, but you can't kill the self. <laughs> and you're not the killer huh, of the body either. Why? He says, I take care of that. Ishwara takes care of that. Ishwara creates and destroys the body's what? These experiences out of me, out of consciousness, out of me, he said. Ishwara is creating those experiences out of me, out of awareness. Just like a spider creates what? His web out of its own body. Huh? The web is the spider, isn't it? Huh? And when and when when the spider's done with his web, what does he do? He sucks it back into his own body, reamalgamates the web back into his own body and creates another web. Huh? somewhere else. And then when he's done with it, he sucks it back into his own body and creates another web somewhere else. In the same way, what? Consciousness, with the help of Ishwara too, huh? manufactures experience. And what? And sucks the experience back and then manufactures a new experience and then what? Sucks it back, then mixes it up and then generates it into a new experience and then Sucks it back, mixes it up, makes it clean again, and then mixes it, makes it into another experience. Over and over and over again. It just keeps generating experience and experience and experience. You're the experiencer. Understand? No. I only got... I only got... There's four. <laughs> I'm trying to go fast. Okay, take a break and we'll come back. Thank you for listening to the talk of James Wards on the Bhagavad Gita, recorded at Yoga Vidya Bad Meinberg near Hanover in Germany. More information on shiningworld.com and yoga-vidya.org.